Well, thank you uh, so much for this opportunity to join in uh, with this conference. And uh, again, as someone who is uh, not a specialist uh, in this area of postmodernism, I hope I can nonetheless uh, say some illuminating things for you. Um, I'm going to try and do this talk uh, in English without a translator by having all of the uh, quotations that I'll be using uh, in Romanian on the PowerPoint. Hence, I've got my English version down here and Romanian over there, and I shall try and juggle all of the technology and uh, hopefully make our way through. Let me begin with uh, quite a long quotation from uh, St. Augustine, who in his book, The City of God, opens uh, with this analogy uh, between talking about the city of God, the kingdom of God, and the city of the world, uh, in that sort of Pauline uh, sense of the world. And he analyzes history uh, up until his day in terms of the ongoing interaction and conflict between the city of God and the city of the world. And he says that two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. The one delights in its own strength, and the other says to its God, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And therefore the wise men of the one city, living according to man, have sought for profit to their own bodies or souls, or both. And those who have known God glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. Of course, Augustine is quoting from Paul there. That is, glorifying in their own wisdom, they became possessed by pride. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. For they were either leaders or followers of the people in adoring images and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. But in the other city, the city of God, there is no human wisdom, but only godliness, which offers due worship to the true God and looks for its reward in the society of the saints, of holy angels, as well as holy men, that God may be all in all. So for Augustine, there's really only two ways of being human, only two ways of having a human society, only two ways of viewing the world, either looking towards God in adoration or turning your back on God and therefore having to look to the created rather than the creator as the foundation of your life. You can tell which Augustine thinks is the wise way of living. Uh, so we have these uh, different cities or different worldviews, um, if you like. 
Um, we've already had a little brief introduction to, to worldviews. Think of it as your mental dwelling place, uh, your mental home in the world, as it were. Uh, and to borrow a phrase from uh, Richard Rorty, who's a postmodern philosopher, you can think of a worldview like, a bit like a mirror. It reflects your image of reality back to you, as it were. Um, worldviews tend to become self-reinforcing uh, in that once we have a, a certain way of viewing the world, we tend to sort of use it as a sieve to only allow us to notice the things that, that chime with our view of things and to uh, ignore things that don't fit with our view of the world. And of course, I would say that whether or not our world view reflects reality to us depends upon whether or not our worldview is true. And being true is simply a matter of telling it like it is, of being true to the facts. You have uh, a truth claim, which is about the world, and if the world is the way that the truth claim says it is, then it is true. This is very uh, easily grasped and diagrammed. Here we have uh, one uh, picture and another picture, and we have the phrase, the cat is on the mat. Now, in this picture, the phrase, the cat is on the mat, is true, because the cat is on the mat. Okay? haven't lost anyone, have I? Um, in picture number two, the uh, proposition, the cat is on the mat, is it true? Uh, why? Because the cat is not on the mat. Um, <laughs> we have something else on the mat. Uh, Aristotle um, famously defined truth uh, in very simple terms. And he said this. In English, it's even all in words of one syllable, uh, which is lovely. Uh, if one says of what is that it is, or of what is not that it is not, he speaks the truth. And if one says of what is that it is not, or of what is not that it is, he does not speak the truth. Now, amongst certain postmodern ways of thinking, this would be a very controversial claim to make. But it's also exceedingly difficult to escape from. Exceedingly difficult to deny. Because when someone says they deny this concept of truth as correspondence to the facts, well, either they are denying that those are the facts, they're making a claim that they say describes the way that things really are, and that the way things really are is that truth really is not a correspondence between claim and reality. But of course they're claiming that that's the reality of the situation. They're actually using this very 
correspondence concept of truth in the very attempt to deny that it is true. And if they're not really meaning to deny that it's true, then they're not denying that it's true and I don't need to listen to them. And if they're trying to deny that it's true, what can they mean except they're making a truth claim about the facts of the matter? So you cannot get away from this correspondence view of truth without contradicting yourself, without relying on it in the very effort to get away from it. Today's uh, earthly city, you might say, is divided into two uh, districts or overlapping populations trying to live side by side. Uh, The modernist population and the postmodernist population, if you like. Uh, Nicholas Waterstorff, a philosopher from America, puts it like this. Uh, There is a dispute raging today between those who see the Enlightenment project of governing our existence by reason as an unfinished project, promising liberation on which we should continue to work. And on the other hand, those who see the project uh, little but the tyranny of reason. The first party says that if we don't continue to govern our lives by reason, we can only expect more of the terrors of irrationalism. The second party says that if we do continue to govern our lives by reason, we can only expect more of the terrors of rationalism. That in brief is the dispute between the defenders of modernism and the defenders of postmodernism, intense and confused. And I call this talk a pre-modern view of postmodernism Because I want to say, you don't have to choose a side in that battle. You can take a third option, a pre-modern worldview. uh, A view that would say, actually, maybe both sides of this dispute have got something right, something true to say about the world, but that both of them are fundamentally wrong because they're part of the city of the world rather than the city of God. Once upon a time, we had a pre-modern worldview. And our pre-modern worldview led us to build buildings like this. This is a wonderful example of pre-modern architecture. This is Salisbury Cathedral from England. I remember the first time that I visited this on a school trip to hear an organ concert in the uh, cathedral. And we pulled up outside and I looked at the cathedral and I thought, that is a really impressive building. And then I noticed the doors at the front and that that's a car. And so that's the size of a person. And then I thought, that is a really impressive building. And under this pre-modern way of looking at things, we looked into our pre-modern worldview mirror and we asked the famous question, just like the Queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, who is the fairest of them all? Tell us, 
my mirror of reality. And our mirror said something along these lines. God is the fairest of them all. God is the maximally great being, in Anselm's phrase. God is the most beautiful possible being. But God created this cosmos, this ordered beauty around us. And he made humanity in his image only a little lower than the angels. And on this view, we're putting God at the the very foundation or the very apex of our view of reality. I just wanted to pick up on two of the uh, things that have already happened today. We started off with that lovely violin music and we had mention of the Trinity earlier. So I just wanted to uh, import a couple of slides that would let me talk about uh, music and the Trinity. Uh, I started off uh, studying music at university before I went over to do philosophy. Uh, So a chord in music is one sound that is composed of three different sounds. You have the... uh, the chord of C major, if I can go over to the piano briefly. So the chord of C major, you have uh, the root of the chord, which is, funnily enough, C. And then you have the third note of the chord, which is E. And then the fifth note of the chord, which is G. Three separate sounds. One sound. (laughs) Is it one sound or is it three sounds? Yes. (laughs) God is one divine personal being. The most beautiful personal reality that there can be. He is composed of three divine persons. The Father the root of the divine cord, if you like, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who together form the Godhead. And so there is this uh, interrelationality of persons within the very nature of God. It's the only way in which God could be love, could contain Love within himself and not be dependent upon some person outside of God in order to be love. God doesn't have to create in order to love. He is love. And indeed God contains both qualitatively different kinds of love. Um, The father loves the son. This is one person Loving another person. Together, the Father and the Son love the Spirit. This is not merely loving, but loving with a loved one. If you added a fourth person to, the, to God, you wouldn't get a qualitatively different type of love. And so you only need three persons in God to have the, the full expression of love in God, and that's why God is Trinitarian. So, 
that view of God, and particularly this Christian Trinitarian view of God, puts love and relationship at the foundation of understanding who we are as people. We're talking a lot about community and so on in your talk. And the world that we live in. And under this view of things, this is a charming uh, medieval painting of uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with God and all of the animals surrounding. It's actually a view that many historians and philosophers of science have noted gave an impetus to the birth of, of scientific thinking. If God is rational person who created this ordered beauty of the cosmos and created people in his image, people can expect not to comprehend God, but at least to understand something about God in whose image they're made, and also, of course, to understand something about the way in which the world, the cosmos that God has made works. Because, if you like, the, the, rationality, the rationality encoded in, in nature out there and the way that the human mind happens to work in here, you can expect them to fit together because they both come from the same rational source. A source who you can expect to do things in a rational way, but whom you can also expect to exercise his freedom as a person. And therefore, unlike the ancient Greeks, you can't just sit back in your armchair and think, how must planets move? I suppose they must go in perfect circles. Because that's how I'd do it. You, know. um, you can think, well, however planets move, it must be rationally understandable by us. There'll be a rationale. But God's got freedom to do it however, however he likes. So we better go and have a look. We better go and get the telescope and have a look and see how he did it and investigate. And the more we investigate that reality, that cosmos, that ordered beauty, the greater will our awe and respect and love for its creator become. So Alvin Plantinger, uh, just a couple of quotes from him here. He says, Modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism, it's a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created in us. A spectacular display of the image of God in human beings. So Christians are committed to taking science with the utmost seriousness. And in his recently published book, uh, Where the Conflict Really Lies, a book about the interaction between uh, uh, faith and science, really, he argues that it's theism... Not naturalism, the worldview of modernism, that deserves to be called the scientific worldview. And to that I say, Amen. <laughs> and then one day, some people at least looked in a different mirror, the modernist mirror, and they asked, Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? Well, the modernist mirror said something along these lines. Well, according to science, which is the only way to know anything, man is the fairest of them all. Although an unverifiable value term like fair 
uh, is nothing but an expression of emotion. Still, uh, man's the most rational being that happens to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of Darwinian evolution, a child of Mother Nature who's finally, finally come of age and rejected those childish superstitions about religion. Well, that has consequences. Ideas have consequences. We start building buildings like this. This is, uh, I believe, Toronto in Canada. On the one hand, it's very impressive, isn't it? It's very vibrant. It's very colourful. It's life going on 24 hours a day because we've got electricity. (laughs) And so we can tire ourselves out all day and all night. Um, But it's also very impersonal. Everybody lives in their little cube next to the other person living in their little cube. And we go to the office and work in our little cube. And maybe we might bump into the person in the next cube when we go to the water cooler. Maybe not. Nancy Piercy, in her wonderful book, uh, Saving Leonardo, I think really uh, puts her finger on something very important here when she talks about the fact-value divide. I think it is absolutely crucial that Christians do not, do not buy into the idea that there is a divide, a gulf, between facts and values. From a pre-modern perspective... There are facts about values. But from a modernist perspective, there aren't. Nancy Percy puts it this way. She says, the strict separation of facts from values is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. Of course, people have always known that there is a, a distinction between is and ought between what you are and what you should be, uh, between descriptive statements and normative statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, um, you ought to love your children. You ought not to torture small children just for fun. Uh, That kind of statement was either true or false. Indeed, it's the only kind of view of values that allows you to be humble about values. Because it's the only view of values which allows you to say things like, well, I think that this is the right thing to do. This is what I ought to do. But I might be wrong about that. I might be wrong. And so I have to be humble. I have to listen to other people. I have to be open to changing my mind. Because, of course, if there is this distinction between facts and values, and there are no facts about values, I can never be wrong about ethics. 
why put much effort into thinking about it if you can never be wrong about it? And so we have this, it doesn't show up particularly well here, but we have, you know, the facts, and this is public and objective and universal and discovered by naturalistic scientific means. And here we have the subjective, personalised world of values. It's all subjective and relative and nothing to do with truth or facts. So... This fact-value distinction has tended to be supported in in one of two different ways within modernism. Um, Either by the idea that talk about values is literally meaningless, it's just nonsense talk, like nonsense poetry. Or the idea that that they're, they're meaningful but always false. Let's look at the first one, the idea that value propositions are meaningless. It's particularly associated with the, uh, the logical positivism movement of the uh, early 20th century. And in Britain, it was made uh, particularly, uh, made inroads through uh, A.J. Eyre at Oxford University uh, and his 1936 book, Language, Truth and Logic. And the positivists uh, had this idea about when... Language meant something. And that idea was that language only means something if it's true by definition, like uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or you will never meet a married bachelor. It's just true by definition. Um, Or it was meaningful if you could uh, use your senses, use science in some way to, to verify it, to check it out, at least in, potentially. So, you know, even before we'd gone to the dark side of the moon, it would still make sense to say the dark side of the moon is made of cheese. It might be a silly thing to say, but it's a meaningful thing to say. You, you, it's, you can understand, you could debate about it, you could say, I know what you mean, and that's stupid. Okay? Whereas if it wasn't a meaningful claim, you, you couldn't even say, well, that's a stupid thing to say, because you wouldn't know what they'd said. <laughs> just, it would just be gibberish. Because, at least in, in principle, if you were to find yourself on the dark side of the moon by a rocket ship or teleported there or whatever, um, you could try eating it. You know, you could yeah, empirically verify that claim. Now, this kind of verification principle had all sorts of knock-on effects, uh, including, of course, uh, any value statements about ethics or aesthetics uh, is nonsense. To say torturing small children for fun is wrong is just gibberish. To say rainbows are beautiful is just... You know, um, which in itself might give you pause for thought. You know, if there's a philosophical theory, the consequence of which is that it's not true to say torturing small children for fun is wrong because it's not even meaningful and therefore it can't be true, then you might think, well, so much the worse for that philosophical theory. That's a lot less plausible than my moral knowledge is. Also, Eyre, in his book, said this, God is a metaphysical term. And if God's a metaphysical term, then it can't even be probable that a God exists. For to say God exists 
is to make a metaphysical utterance, which cannot be either true or false. It fails to satisfy the verification principle. It's not a tautology. It's not true by definition. And being metaphysical, it's neither true nor false, but literally senseless. Which also means you can't literally be an atheist if you're a positivist. Being an atheist is just as meaningless as being a theist or being an agnostic. It just completely shoves that whole conversation off the table, kicks it into the long grass. However, as I've indicated, we, we do know some things that are meaningful that don't fit this verification criteria. Um, it seems to me obvious that torturing small children for fun is wrong and that therefore obviously that that's a meaningful claim and obviously it doesn't fit the verification. It's not meaningful because it's true by definition. It's not meaningful because we can do some experiment that would prove it. Well, so much for verificationism in my book. Um, religious claims, which were really the target the motivation behind logical positivism actually can fit the criteria. Um, the British philosopher called John Hick pointed out that particularly Christianity, since it's this historical revelation claim that you could empirically investigate like by doing archaeology or talking about the historical evidence for the resurrection or, as Hick pointed out, supposing you die and you find yourself in what is clearly the Christian picture of heaven. Wouldn't that empirical experience, oh, here I am in my new resurrected body, before the pearly gates, shaking hands with St. Paul, wouldn't that verify the truth of Christianity? So the truth of Christianity is at least verifiable in principle, which is all the criteria um, uh, stipulated. And indeed, what about the verification criteria? Is it true by definition that any sentence that doesn't pass the verification criteria is meaningful or not meaningful? Uh, what, what empirical observations could you make to prove that the verification criteria is true? None. It's just a philosophical assertion. It doesn't pass its own standard. Like trying to deny that truth is correspondence to fact, it just contradicts itself. And so uh, in the uh, middle half of the 20th century, the uh, whole logical positivism school uh, died a death. Interestingly enough, I've been reading with me... Um, book on the cosmological argument uh, by Bruce Reichenbach, uh, published in 1972. And he's talking in the preface to this book. Um, he says, the era is past when all metaphysical statements or arguments can simply be dismissed as silly or senseless, since they do not meet a pre-established criterion of verifiability. Uh, he says there's now a gradual awakening of interest in philosophical theology and arguments for God and so on. The whole conversation about God got put back on the table of philosophy when verificationism died a death. 
And indeed, AJR himself, later on in life, abandoned verificationism. I won't read these quotes out to you, uh, but you can see just a sampling of quotes from him here saying uh, the whole thing was full of mistakes and it's, it's, uh, it's dead. So modernism kind of moved away from that, its meaningless route, and said, OK, let's not use science and so on as a way of telling meaning for meaninglessness, but let's use it as the only way of knowing truth from false. Let's not talk about meaning, but let's talk about truth and say science is the only way to get at truth. Here's a contemporary British atheist called Peter Atkins in his recent book on being. He says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Here's a little video clip uh, from a a post-debate discussion between Peter Atkins and William Lane Craig. Uh, This one's uh, from their debate in the 90s. Uh, They had a recent rematch in Britain, which is all over YouTube as well. I recommend you check it out. Um, But here's William Lane Craig systematically dismantling uh, Peter Atkins' uh, view that science is the only way to know anything. face is just priceless, isn't it? (laughs) (coughs) So now I arrive at the topic that I'm meant to be talking about, having put it in some context. And then one day, some people who understandably might be a little bit annoyed at this kind of imperialistic 
modernistic, impersonal, depersonalizing, science is the only way to know anything, um, or uh, even uh, talk about ethics and beauty and so on is just meaningless. Um, wanted to look in a different mirror and get a different view of themselves and of reality. But the crucial thing here is that they didn't, or not all of them, didn't go back to the pre-modern way of viewing things. One day we looked into the post-modern worldview mirror and asked, who is the fairest of them all? And the post-modern mirror said something along these lines, and this uh, summary that I've put together includes quite a few quotations from postmodernists. Uh, bonus prizes later for those who can spot them. Um, although words only mean whatever they mean to you, I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying I'm the fairest of them all, then I am the fairest of them all. After all, Values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works and which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin and admit we know, we know that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. The French philosopher Francis Lyotard characterised postmodern uh, thinking as an incredulity towards meta-narratives. He must be a philosopher because he's using long words... <laughs> to mean simple things. And this is what we have an unfortunate tendency of doing. Um, being sceptical about having a big picture of things. Being sceptical about there being an overall story to life that makes sense. Of course, that is his meta-narrative. Nobody lives without a worldview. And on the basis of postmodernism, people started building buildings like this. This is the Rexner Center for the Performing Arts in America. And Ravi Zacharias, the Indian apologist, tells a fascinating story about visiting America uh, and seeing this building. He says, postmodernism tells us that there's no such thing as truth, no such thing as meaning, no such thing as certainty. I remember lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest in the country. I was minutes away from beginning my lecture, and my host was driving me past a new building called the Rexner Center for the Performing Arts. And he said, uh, this is America's first postmodern building. I was startled for a moment, and I said, What's a postmodern building? He said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. 
When the architect was asked, why? He said, well, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built and somebody's paid for it. (laughs) I said, so his argument was that if life has no purpose in design, why should the building have any design? He said, that's correct. And I said, did he do the same with the foundation? (laughs) All of a sudden there was silence. You see, you and I can fool around with the infrastructure as much as we'd like. But we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. And so I think William Lane Craig is kind of on to something when he says that the idea that we live in a postmodern culture is a myth, in a sense. He says a postmodern culture is an impossibility. It would be utterly unlivable. And indeed, I think uh, the closer somebody tries to really live out a postmodern worldview, the worse the effects on their life is going to be, the more consistent they are to that system, as Francis Schaeffer might have put it, uh, the more hurt and harm they're going to be doing to themselves. And that is one reason why our motive of love for people comes in here. This is not just about us being right. This is about us loving people who need uh, the God of love. People are not relativistic, says Craig, when it comes to matters of science, engineering, and technology. Nobody reads the instructions on the aspirin bottle as a postmodernist, deconstructionist, reader response. Texts only mean whatever they mean to you. <laughs> Take as many tablets as you like, <laughs> kind of a way. Because they know if they do that, they might very soon end up dead. (laughs) It's only in matters of religion or ethics or these things that the modernist view have said, that's all to do with the private, individual, subjective, personal, not communal world. In matters of religion and ethics, people are uh, subjectivist. But of course, says Craig, that's not postmodernism. That's modernism. That's just old line verificationism. We live in a culture that remains deeply modernist. And I think he has a point. But maybe only up to a point, as it were. J.P. Morland recently published a paper in which he distinguished between four different levels of depth of postmodernism postmodernism, as it were. Uh, And they all have fancy uh, Greek names, but let's not use those. Um, (laughs) So we start out at the bottom there with value-denying postmodernism, which is really modernism. Okay? There's a big overlap there. But then as we move... This is sort of shallow postmodernism, if you like. But we move into deep postmodernism and deeper into postmodernism as we, we work up this list. There would then be 
knowledge-denying postmodernism, truth-denying postmodernism. Not only don't we know the truth, we can't know the truth, but there isn't even any truth to be known, which is an even sort of deeper uh, doubt to have. And then the deepest is this reality-denying postmodernism. Not only is there no truth, there's no reality about which there could be any truth. So Douglas Greithouse um, says, a bit like Craig, that postmodernism is often presented as a radical departure from modernism. But at least when we're talking about this shallow postmodernism, they're really the same thing. There's an overlap here. And I want to try and diagram this overlap for you. Here we have the pre-modern worldview. You know, it's very big on God. It's very big on science. This is fine. These go together nicely. It's very big on objective values, truth and goodness and beauty, and uh, wisdom and reason and objective meaning and purpose and all of that. And modernism comes along and says, well, we don't really want this God stuff. Thank you very much. That we've outgrown all of that. But we'd like to keep hold of reason... And, and science, we like science. Woohoo, science! Um, and truth, of course, because science is about truth and you know technology and so on. But we'll do without some of that fluffier meaning and values and so on. You know, yeah. So we're nice and hard and modernistic, and science and truth, which means we're kind of a little bit shallowly postmodern when it comes to values. We have this fact-value divide, and the postmodernist comes along and says, well, okay, this is sort of shallow here and so on, but there's a deeper postmodernism where we're really rejecting reason and objective truth, even about things that aren't about values. And there's a sort of process of decay from a pre-modern viewpoint there, isn't there? I was so pleased to hear Nietzsche being mentioned earlier. Um, this validates what I think. <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks it. When you, particularly when you're getting into deep postmodernism here. What's the difference between postmodernism and nihilism? Well, you could describe Nietzsche as the first nihilist, or sometimes you read him and you think he's warning against nihilism. Sometimes you read him and you think he's embracing nihilism. Uh, it's difficult to tell. Says nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals, particularly, of course, the rejection of God, the death of God. His famous parable of the madman proclaiming the consequences of the death of God, which he says people don't realise these, these consequences. They're sort of still living as modernists because they don't realise it. Have I got time to read out the parable of the madman? How are we doing for time, Mario? For like uh, five more minutes. Okay, we're quite tight. So uh, you have it up there, and you can get the, the gist of the parable of the madman. It's easily available uh, online as well. Just uh, Google Nietzsche, the parable of the madman. It goes from God is dead to we've unchained our reality from its sun. There's no up and down left. There's no horizon. No no standard of judgment. Not just about values, but about anything. He says the great recent event that God is dead 
is beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe. We talked about suspicion. The suspicion uh, that some sun seems to have set and some ancient and profound trust has been turned into doubt. If you want a one-sentence summary of postmodernism, trust has been turned into doubt. Don't think you could do much better. How much must collapse now that that faith has been undermined because it was built on this faith in God. For example, the whole of our European morality. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. And Nietzsche wrote one of his books criticising ethical philosophers who wanted to do away with God but keep all of the traditional values. And at least people like Peter Singer you might say, are being more consistent to their non-theistic way of viewing the world in undermining those traditional values, being more consistent to their non-Christian way of viewing things. Even denying knowledge. These are fascinating because here's Richard Rorty is a prime kind of uh, post-modernist philosopher, and here he is undermining human trust in knowledge and reasoning on very modernist-sounding grounds. It was him who talked about keeping faith with Darwin. He says, the idea that one species of organism is, unlike all the others, orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, but towards truth, with a capital T, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass. So you get rid of God, it's not just moral values that go, but truth with a capital T that goes. John Gray says something very similar in that quote here. He says, the human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian era that humans are different from other animals. Truth has no systematic evolutionary advantage over error. And so that very scientific, modernistic way of looking at the world starts to undermine the fact that it wants to hold on to truth and rationality and science whilst getting rid of God. It was Nietzsche who said, why should you pay attention to truth? If you have a fact-value distinction, if there's no truth about values, it is not true to say you ought to value truth. You ought to guide your decisions by what is true by your best lights rather than what you think might make you happiest. Maybe those come adrift. Who knows? It's all up for grabs. What is truth? A movable host of metaphors. It's a little enigmatic, but Nietzsche even said, I fear we'll never be rid of God so long as we still believe in grammar. So long as we still believe that our language gives us access not just to our language, but to reality. And if our language really can give us access to reality, then maybe that needs to depend upon us being 
rational creatures made in the image of God. And so, let me end with a verse from the Bible. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. It seems to me, and I'm kind of partially agreeing with Nietzsche here, that there is uh, an inner uh, tension within modernism that if you don't wind the clock back to a pre-modern view, drives you towards post-modernism. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain your whole world or the privilege of establishing your own non-God-centered worldview? Yet forfeit your soul. Uh, and maybe that's just as true at the philosophical, at the social level as it is at the individual personal level. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, for this uh, timely and very uh, challenging uh, lecture you gave. Uh, we'll hand it over to the audience now for Q&A session. Uh, What what is next after postmodernism? <laughs> well, by the grace of God, a return to pre-modernism, I hope. Um, I think postmodernism shows the inherent flaws within modernism. I think, you know, I think modernism is right in wanting to extol the virtue of believing in truth, believing in rationality, believing that science is great. But all of those beliefs find a much more comfortable, coherent, sensible home in a God-centered worldview than in a naturalistic worldview. And if you realize that and you don't want to go back to God, you are driven towards deep postmodernism and nihilism. Um, and so I hope that um, if there is a gaining trend of postmodernism, I don't know whether there is or not, but that uh, people can only go so far down that road before turning the clock back, as C.S. Lewis suggested, or really um, 
really suffering from the consequences of that worldview. Uh, and out of uh, the love of God, we want to help people uh, return home rather than um, live eating out of the pigsty in a foreign land. Yeah? Um, um, I'd like to take this to a, a more um, existential level. Mm. And you started off by saying that uh, we have to... Uh, uh, you set it up the framework of the uh, uh, correspondence uh, theory of truth, and we should approach all worldviews within this framework. Mm. Mm. But it's, it's quite a concern that it's been on my heart for so many, so many uh, years. And uh, that's, it seems to me that the post-modern worldview, it promotes or props uh, uh, out or amplifies a crisis in motivation, or mm. crisis of motivation. As uh, And uh, I know uh, Pope Benedict speaks about this uh, a lot in uh, mm. his writings. And, um, well, I was just wondering, um, what should we do with these people who don't believe in, in truth, and mm. they would say, well, I'm, I don't have an interest for uh, scientific, scientific truth or religious truth or any other sort of truth. Mm. I don't care about truth. It's just the way... Uh, it might be true, it might not be true. Mm. I just carry on with my life, uh, no caring about anything like that. And uh, yeah. uh, it happens to have my agenda with me. Mm-hmm. And I've got a quote here, which uh, would um, um, uh, reinforce my, my, my question. Uh, it's Roger Tenley who says this. Uh, don't wake me before the end of the world unless it has some very good special effects. <laughs> <laughs> very good special effects. Yeah, which even in and of itself hints at a hunger for beauty, I would say. Um, it's not just uh, truth and goodness, but truth and goodness and beauty. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm so glad that we started off today by talking about beauty and having some beautiful music. Uh, and that I um, put a little uh, illustration about uh, music and, and, and the centrality of, of beauty. Uh, in the cosmos, the ordered beauty God's created and so on. Um, I think, as Bill Craig says, it, it's literally unlivable to be 100% consistent with a postmodern view of things. Um, a story by Ravi Zacharias springs to mind. Ravi Zacharias is a great source of illustrations, a very good speaker. Uh, so I nick his illustrations as much as I can. Um, <laughs> And he says, he was lecturing at a, at, a, at a Western university, and one of the professors there uh, was a professor of Eastern philosophy, and was very upset with him for using this uh, category of, of correspondence truth to judge which worldview you're going to pick, because he said, that's such a Western way of thinking about it. That's kind of such a pre-modern way, and you're just imposing your pre-modern Western way of thinking onto everybody else. You know, that's so intolerant. Uh, what you've got to realize is that there's another way of thinking. You have the Western either-or, correspondence truth, but you have the Eastern both-and, you know, the sort of the, the sound of one hand clapping kind of thing, which I've always thought that's not particularly difficult because I know what the sound of one hand clapping is. It... <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, which is kind of ironic given that Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias comes from a Hindu background in India <laughs> and he's being challenged on this point by a Western philosophy professor in America. Anyway, the two go to dinner and after a while uh, Ravi asks the professor a question. He says, so let me get clear what you're arguing. You're arguing that when I'm judging a worldview, I either 
use the either-or logic, or I use the both-and logic, and the right one to use is the both-and. And the professor is quiet for a moment and says, hmm, the either-or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? And Ravi says to him, let me tell you a secret. Even in India, when we cross the road, we look both ways because it's either the bus or us. Uh, which I think makes the point, well, it, it is literally unlivable to deny truth in every area of one's life. Um, so you may just have to f- help that person see where it is in their life that really um, they're not being consistent with their view and help them to explore why that is and how Christianity can give them a consistent and livable view of reality. Thank you very much. That's been helpful. Are everybody? Um, I know that you work with the Maris. Sign up, please. In your work with the Maris, you analyze a lot of uh, films and you mm-hmm. discuss about this. And you also wrote a few study guides. Mm-hmm. Guides. Um, could you say to us if you've noticed an increase in, in nihilistic ideas in movies, and maybe you could give some examples? Yeah, okay, this is a good question. The the traditional sort of Western storytelling format will include stories with some concept of of redemption in them. That's a very Christian concept. There's some story where people go through suffering, overcome various obstacles in order to achieve a goal. Maybe someone will lose their life in the process of doing that to, to save other people or put their life at risk to save those they love and so on. And they might go through lots of suffering and then you get to the end of the movie and you have this moment of, of redemption. Um, so the, the recent Tron 2 movie that came out, classic example of that, it ends with this lovely scene of um, uh, the human and the uh, computer lady that he's rescued from the virtual world. Um, it's very complicated, I don't want to go into it too much, but you know, uh, the, the, he's found the love of his life in this uh, virtual world and he, he's saved her uh, taken her into the real world and shown her the sun for the first time she's never seen the sun um, and they ride on his motorbike as the sun comes up over the horizon at the end of the film and you have this great sense of oh, you know then they all lived happily ever after you know, very Christian um, but then there are films that deny that sense of, of redemption at the end. And I think this is a key thing to think about in terms of horror movies in, in particular. Um, you know, there are some horrific things that happen in the Bible. Okay? But it is, it, is, it is redemptive, the horrific things that happen. Sometimes people depict horrific things with, with, and, 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 and wall off any possibility of redemption. Um, and uh, horror movies is one where this becomes particularly clear. There was some, uh, this is quite an old film now, uh, Event Horizon, a science fiction film that basically took the old haunted house idea, put it on a spaceship in space. Um, but the characters at the end of that film, after all of their struggles, it appeared that they had escaped from the, the evil that they met in outer space. And they all go into cryo sleep for the long journey back home, having, you know, just got away 
and they wake up and they find that they're still in the nightmare. And that's where the film ends. There is no redemption, there's no escape uh, from the nightmare. Um, I, I don't, you know, I have a statistical sample uh, of films to say whether uh, more films or fewer films have that kind of ending now, but it's certainly one of the big themes to look out for. Uh, does a film, you know, irrespective of how it shows horror or terrible things, does it give it a redemptive context or does it undermine any redemptive context? And that tells you a lot about where the, the worldview of the filmmakers are coming from. I'm afraid we have to draw this to an end, but uh, please join me in thanking um, Peter Wilson. <coughs> Thank you very much.